Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. You know what's a great song? Cannonball by The Breeders. Hey, Kevin, press play on that. It's fun. It's weird. It's catchy. Kim Deal, the leader of the band, wrote it when she was on hiatus from her other band, the Pixies. And the Pixies never made it into the Hot 100. Cannonball was a blockbuster. If you're my age, you remember that the video was basically on repeat on MTV. And there was one other big difference from any of the other records that Kim Deal had ever made. Well, I'll tell you what, one thing that was different about it. I was in a bar and um, regular bar. Then this had never happened with the Pixies. And there was a dance floor in the bar and the DJ, there was a DJ and the DJ played Cannonball and people rushed to the floor. And it mm-hmm. was the first time that I had ever been in a band where people da- actually danced to the song, any song <laughs> that the band had ever done. It was like, oh, my God, people are dancing to this. It's crazy. It was really exciting. I rushed out there just so I could stand there while people were dancing to the song. It's Bullseye. Coming up, the great Kim Deal. She's got the band back together for a new Breeders record. It's great. We'll talk about that. Also, it's pretty much rock and roll folklore at this point, how Kim Deal joined the Pixies. She found the band by responding to a classified ad. But what about the one she passed on? I saw one in L.A. that was for a certain 22 to 24-year-old singer for heavy metal rock and music for originals. Must have blonde hair. Must be between shoulder length and middle of back. Then Raul Peck. He just directed a movie that tells the origin story of one of the most influential philosophers of the last, I don't know, ever, Karl Marx. It's been a long journey for Peck, from his childhood in Haiti and as a refugee from Haiti in the Congo, to being an Oscar-nominated documentarian last year for his film, I Am Not Your Negro. The thing we do as artists is really, uh, you, you never can be satisfied, you know, uh, uh, I think it's almost the contrary. I, I just look at myself and my work, you know, and look back and say, oh, my God, I, I did survive. And in the outshot, I'll tell you about the perfect record that launched Curtis Mayfield's solo career. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My first guest this week is a genuine rock and roll legend, Kim Deal. Born and raised in Dayton, Ohio, she started in music playing guitar with her sister Kelly. But unlike a lot of kids with guitars that age, she never really had a real band. They never played shows. They didn't tour. In the mid-'80s, she got married, she moved to Boston, and she replied to a classified ad looking for a bassist. Before long, that classified ad turned into a band, the Pixies. They were a band that... No exaggeration, change the course of rock. Later, when the Pixies were on hiatus, 
Kim started to record her own music again. She restarted The Breeders in 1989, and the band put out Pod, their first record, in 1990. I wait for you in heaven on this perfect string of love and drink your... In the 28 years that have passed since, The Breeders have broken up and reformed quite a few times. They've toured extensively but sporadically. And through it all, Kim has had a knack for writing honest, sincere rock songs. The Breeders' newest album is called All Nerve. It's their first in 10 years, and it drops March 2nd. Let's take a listen to the first single from the album. It's called Wait in the Car. Kim Deal, welcome to Bullseye. It's so great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Kim, you grew up in and still live in Dayton, Ohio, or at least the suburbs of Dayton, Ohio. Did you like it when you were a kid? Did I like Dayton, Ohio when I was a kid? Yes, I did. Yeah. It would flood. Um, I li- I was born, um, I grew up on Huber Heights, and um there was a lot of kids around. It was the 60s. There was a lot of neighborhoods. It was a new, there were new houses, new suburb buildings. Um, it wasn't super fancy, super middle class. And when at the when it rained, the, the bottom of the streets would flood and we'd all get out there and, and walk around in the water, the sewer water, which seemed like <laughs> a great, fun thing to do. And now I just go gross. But I enjoyed it. Yeah. You survived cholera, though, so that's good. Yeah. Um, did you did you still feel that way when you were like a, a teenager or an adolescent? Or were you scheming on how to do something, uh, you know, how to make it in show business or whatever? Let's see. Um, there. Where are you from anyway? San Francisco. Oh, were you born and raised in San Fran? Yeah. See, it's hard to describe to somebody who wasn't, who's born in a city. Okay, when you're in the city, there is an, um, there's a visualization of people who are in all sorts of industries. And whether the family knows anybody in the industry or not, it's it's there and it's around like you know there might be a casting call for a movie or um a shoot you know a film set being shot down the street so it's always in in the area and the you know so in Huber Heights the ideal of showbiz i think would be i think for most people would be high school musicals I mean, I went. I remember going to Boston when you know, checking out the clubs there and realizing that people you could play. You were expected to play originals. Where in Dayton, Ohio, there's an expectation in the small bars there to play three sets at least, maybe four sets, and it would be mostly covers, 
because that's what people wanted to hear what was on the radio. And if your band did do it original, everybody knew it was probably the worst song in the set. I mean, I wasn't in any of those bands, but that's just because I wasn't in a band in Ohio. But there wouldn't even be an idea of a band doing an all-original set. But you were playing with your sister, like you were aspiring to make music and even doing it professionally when you were a teenager, right? I guess, you know, we were doing it professionally. What is professionally? <laughs> I think that's where you get paid. <laughs> um, I don't think you I guys were supporting yourself making music, but you, but you were, no. like, playing out with a band at some point, right? No, not, no, never played out with the band in Dayton. Never. Good Lord, no. Um, we would play, I would play acoustic, and me and Kelly, we would start it out, you know, just playing acoustic and singing together and loving music and then you know you know our our you know our parents friends you know were getting remarried and they asked us to play at the wedding and back in the day the songs to learn at the wedding you know, we were, you know, night, even we were still in high school, we would be doing Annie's song by John Denver. And there's a song called The Wedding Song. Um, and uh, The Rose, we would do that song. And so there was always a little fist, fistful of songs you could, you would do at the wedding. And we did quite a few weddings. And then there were the ground round. Do you remember ground round where you could eat the peanuts and you throw them on the floor? I don't, but that sounds great. And then you do four sets, and we would do some. We would do some original songs, and people would come up and say, "What's that song?" And that would be very. They would like that song, and that was good. When did you get the idea that there was, um, you know, another kind of rock music in addition to that? And and how did you figure that out? It was hard because in Huber Heights, you know, it's not like now with the internet. When we're lucky enough to have it, it's different because there's no. There was no fanzine, and there was no college stations. You know, the college stations thing started in the early 80s that I know of. And I only found out about the college stations in when I moved to Boston. I didn't even know about it in Dayton. My, my sister knew somebody who was going to school on the coast, and he would bring back these mixtapes of James Blood Almer, you know, the undertones, the Costello... And so um, <clears throat> that's how I found out about some of those bands. And then I went to Ohio State University for like a semester, and I saw the talking heads. So probably college, I guess, finally getting out or knowing somebody who wasn't when, when we get to that college age, which is a great reason to go to college right there just to – if you're from a small town especially, you know. You know, one of the things that I am struck by about you and your career is that as much as, like, for lack of a better word, rocking out, was tied up in these, you know, cultural ideas about sort of absurd masculinity, you know, whether it's Led Zeppelin or Van Halen in tights, um, you know, whatever it is, and when new wave came in and and was another option it was often very beautiful or electronic um and you chose to like 
continue to rock out. Like the fact that the the fact that that horizon opened before you when you saw the Talking Heads didn't mean that you abandoned like the ideal of wailing on a guitar. You know. Right. I did like Led Zeppelin a lot and Black Sabbath a lot. I like Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath too. They're they're great. <laughs> they're awesome. <laughs> right. Yeah, I just like uh, guitars, maybe because I grew up with the guitars being, you know, so prevalent, and and I still like guitars. I also, there's a lot of, you know, being from Southern Ohio, and there's and my parents are from West Virginia, so there's a lot of um, the Appalachian culture that I'm that was around, like, and there's a lot of guitar playing and that, and there's a lot of women guitar playing in Appalachian culture. So it never got, there was never in my mind an idea that, oh, a woman playing guitar, that's odd. It's like, of course the woman is playing guitar because that's what, you know, bluegrass and being in the hillbillies that my mom and dad grew up, they were from the hollers in West Virginia. So that's what I mean, families played music. It was so the ideal of a female playing a guitar would just be wouldn't even be looked at as weird. Well, I want to play a Pixie song, mm-hmm. but I want you to tell me first how you ended up in the band. Um, I had married somebody who was visiting, who was working as a trans. He was a transplant from Boston. He was like a contract worker at the Air Force Base who had, who was working a limited time where you were living. Exactly. And they called him some, something I forgot. It begins with the T. Anyway, um, yeah. And my brother introduced us. And we got married. And it was time for him to go back to Boston. And I went with them. And I was just there for like... We were, we were married for like less than a year before we moved back there. And then I was in Boston for like a week. And... Um, I did what I've done before. When I was in L.A., I did this, too. Some people might not know back in the day you could you could kind of go to the back of these city weekly papers and you can look at the personal ads, you know. A lot of them are, you know, hey, starting a band, you know, musician wanted. And they were kind of fun to read because they were ridiculous, you know, musician wanted, pro attitude only, must have van, you know, serious. We're gonna. We're here to do it for real. Something like that. You know, every night available. Just a lot of real serious, no sense of humor. People wanting music. I saw one in L.A. that was for a certain twenty-two to twenty-four-year-old singer for heavy metal rock and music for originals. Must have blonde hair. Must be between shoulder length and middle of back. I'm just like, wow, this is so crazy. And then the one I read at the in the Phoenix was something about looking for somebody to play with, to do uh, songs a la Peter, Paul, and Mary and Husker do. Um, <laughs> no chops. <laughs> it's like I, I, didn't, I didn't really think, I mean, it wasn't a band. They weren't a band. But it was a couple of people. And it's like, you know, I would like to... You know, it's like one of those things where you think, well, what a relief. That seems cool to me anyway. And I was the only ad I've ever answered, and I was the only person who answered their ad. So so I I called them up, and then I went to their house, and we hung out, and then we just started hanging out constantly. Let's listen to Gigantic by the Pixies with my guest Kim Deal singing lead vocals. Uh, and it's a song that she wrote as well. And this I know, his teeth as white as snow. Gas it was to see him 
walker every day into a shady place with her lips she said Did you have a feeling like, yes, we're revolutionizing rock music? Uh, or were you not aware of it at the time? Um, yeah, no. Um, <laughs> I remember doing that, and I remember the, after the first take of me, I came back in and listened to it, and I was saying completely out of tune. Because you got to get used to the fact that when you're on a mic and you're wearing headphones and you're listening to pitch your vocal onto top of music, it's a totally different thing than singing out loud in a room. So you have to figure out, like, oh, do I, where's my pitch at? Is it off of one headphone? Is it off of two? How do I find it? And then when it, but it was funny when I came into the room, it always reminded me of this, you know, the Partridge Family episode where David Cassidy thinks a girl is Keith. Partridge thinks the girl is cute and she goes up on stage and she sings out a tune and the people are clapping so loud that that nobody knows that she's singing out a tune. Anyway, when I came back in after singing Gigantic out of tune, Steve Albini was just, yeah, it sounds good. And I listened to it. It's like, oh, holy crap. I have to do it again. I don't think he notices when things are out of tune, though. (laughs) It just reminds me of that for some reason. And I, we thought it was funny that Steve was getting these snippets of tape and putting them in between our our songs, you know, skit-like almost, you know? Mm-hmm. And I hadn't heard a lot of people do that before. I've read him basically be embarrassed about having done that. that he, he is, felt isn't like he? he, that, he that he, like, you know, that he was trying to... He was doing something that wasn't that didn't belong to the band and wasn't his place to do. When when he was playing it, we were we loved it. I don't know why he thinks that right now. Maybe he just is. He has rethought his philosophy of how invisible his production skills he wants to be. Maybe you know he's rethought that and it's it lands on a different side now. But at the time, we were it was we thought it was cool. And we thought we sounded cool, and we thought we were funny. Maybe he thinks it was a step too far. My conversation with Kim Deal continues after a short break. We'll talk about the Breeders' smash hit Cannonball and what it was like to go from being in an important band to being in an important band with a smash hit song. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for Bullseye and the following message come from ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? Every business needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than posting your job online and waiting for the right people to see it. ZipRecruiter can help. Their technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash bullseye. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. I'm Ophira Eisenberg. Join me on NPR's Ask Me Another as we challenge contestants and celebrities to nerdy word games, music parodies, and ponderful trivia. Find us every week on the NPR One app and wherever you listen to podcasts.
It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Kim Deal, the lead singer for the Breeders and one of the founding members of the Pixies. The new Breeders record, All Nerve, their first in a decade, drops March 2nd. Were you surprised, Kim, when your project started on a touring break from the Pixies, the Breeders, became a smash hit band. I mean, in a way that the Pixies even had never been as much as they were, you were a successful working band. When I was 13, I watched you on MTV, you know. Was that surprising to you at the time? Um, I think surprising. I don't know if that's the word as much as it is unintended. <laughs> I mean, the break from the Pixies then was... It was kind of, you could tell, like, that we probably weren't going to get back together. That's what I was thinking anyway. And then it does go slowly. Like, the the song that got on the radio, Cannibal, you know, I'm using my brother's harmonica microphone because that's like the Fulgerberg, you know, Loggins and Messina in there. And, of course, my brother has a harmonica microphone. And of course, as a sister, you want to plug it into the Marshall and you want to start going... <laughs> Chuck, chuck, one, two, three. You know, because that's fun. That's what you do to your brother's harmonica microphone. <laughs> so, I mean, and starting out with the with the feedback and the squeals and stuff, you know, it's certainly nothing that one thinks. Okay, now we got the top of the song ready for a smash radio hit, you know, or something. So it is, and it was un- certainly unintended. That I mean, I really liked it. Why? I mean, nobody thinks it's going to be on the radio or anything. That would be weird. Let's hear a little bit of it. Uh, that's like one of those songs that um, when I got my first CD player, it was one of my first CDs, and it was, you know, you could, um, like the the magic power of a CD player to somebody who had listened only to cassettes is that you could put a song on repeat. I think I probably listened to that song, you know, <laughs> 20 times in a row often sitting in my basement room at my dad's house. Yeah. Um, and it that's like... cool. It was really cool and you were and are very cool but like that that must have transformed your life in a lot of unintended ways to be in a hit making rock band rather than a taste making rock band you know it was it was cool i'll tell you what one thing that was different about it i was in a bar and um regular bar then this had never happened with the pixies and there was a dance floor in the bar and the dj there was a dj and the dj played cannonball and people rushed to the floor and it was the first time that i had ever been in a band where people actually danced to the song any song (laughs) that the band had ever done it was like oh my god people are dancing to this it's crazy it was really exciting I rushed out there just so I could stand there while people were dancing to the song. What was it like to get the band back together for the Breeders more recently? We were sitting on the couch, Kelly's couch, in like 02. 
It was the spring, summer, and Kelly said, do you know next year is 2013? She said, do you know that's 20 years for Last Splash? We should call Jim and Josephine and see if they want to do some shows. And I thought maybe Jim McPherson was mad at me because we had played with the amps and he had left my house in a huff and I hadn't spoken to him since. So I said, I'll text Josephine. You text Jim McPherson. (laughs) And so I texted Josephine and she said, I'd love to. And Jim said, I'd love to. And then we started getting together and we started, we told, you know, 4AD found out about it. And 4AD is like, you know, what about a box set? And it's like, you know, we have all these singles that people, when we they released a single back in the day they would put like three songs on it and it's quite a nice release and a lot of those are import only so we put all of those in the box set and so there was that and so it lasted we really enjoyed doing it the same sort of thing people couldn't wait and they knew what songs coming next and i love the album so it, you know and it was fun and it's great playing with jim and josephine you were a really serious drinker through much of the early years of the breeders was part of the experience of doing it now more recently the difference between doing it when you were I mean I I read you describing drinking so much that you would black out in the middle of sets and sort of come back a song later was part of the experience the difference of you know playing to a packed club uh, clear eyed well not what you're saying isn't exactly true okay um, I I don't mind you saying it at all, but it, it's not exactly true. I never played drunk and stoned. I just couldn't do it. You can't play drunk and you can't play stone. So through all the pixies and through all the breeders, never did it. Then the amps started. That's a whole other band. And then I started drinking. And there was only a couple of shows. One was in Austin. There's only one that I remember. It was in Austin. And I was drinking a lot then. But that wasn't a lot of... I didn't spend my life doing that. I don't typically... uh, That doesn't... It wasn't something I did, you know, typically. Otherwise, I would say it. But I was drinking, but, you know, afterwards and stuff, you know. Right. So, and sorry, sorry, what was the question? Well, how's the experience different, irrespective of the drinking or the uh, pot smoking? From playing? 20 years ago, 25 years ago. Hmm. Um, the PAs are really good nowadays. <laughs> the PAs, they've, they've done fantastic technology. It's really amazing. And there's a lot of difference in sound, the musical style. So there's these, there is some trouble with bass bins, I think, the sub bins. I mean, people really love to open those up. And, you know, there just is no subwoofer in Beatles. There's no subwoofer in most, like, regular. There's no subwoofer in Pixies and stuff like that. So sometimes the PA guy is going to want to do the DJ where they're opening up the big, huge subwoofer and going, and the band, and the song is do-do-do-do-boo-boo-do-do-do, and it's so it just doesn't work. So that's kind of a challenge. It can be if you don't have a good front of house, but we have a good front of house. Kim, it sounds like you are fully ready to go solder some cables right now. <laughs> <laughs> that is a big, huge difference, though. The PAs are fantastic, and there's not a lot of blowback anymore, so the whole sound system sounds a little different. It's like, wow, you, I need to actually hear this. It used to have so much blowback. It's like, it's a, that's a big deal. 
Well, Kim Deal, thank you so much for taking all this time to come on Bullseye and talking to me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for talking to me. I appreciate it, too. Kim Deal, ladies and gentlemen. The Breeders' new album, All Nerve, comes out March 2nd. They're launching a huge nationwide tour in April, too. We'll have a link to dates on the Bullseye page at MaximumFun.org. Let's take a listen to one last track off of All Nerve. This one is called Nervous Mary. Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Raul Peck, is a Haitian filmmaker. Actually, the first Haitian filmmaker ever to have a feature film shown in the United States. He had kind of a tough upbringing. When he was eight, he and his family fled Haiti for the Democratic Republic of the Congo. His father feared for his safety. He bounced around schools all over the world growing up. Brooklyn, Kinshasa, Berlin, In 2016, he directed a movie called I Am Not Your Negro. It was a fiery film about the American writer James Baldwin, nominated for Best Documentary at the Oscars. His latest shares some of that film's DNA, but is also quite different. It's a scripted narrative movie called The Young Karl Marx. Like the title suggests, The Young Karl Marx focuses on the German philosopher in his mid-20s when he met Friedrich Engels. It documents their friendship, their hardships, their romantic relationships. But it's more than just a movie about a man, or about two men even. The Young Karl Marx tells the origin story of one of the most important philosophies in history. Let's take a listen to a little bit from the film. This takes place in London, after Marx, played by August Deal, was exiled from Paris. In this scene, he's in a gentleman's club, and he's talking to a business owner, a man who's friends with Engel's father. He runs a factory that employs child workers. And, you know, I mean, we're talking about Karl Marx here. He has something to say about that. You know very well that without child labor, we'd price ourselves out of the market. Meaning you would have paid a fair price to your workers' labor, right? But I don't set the prices, young man. The market does. Of course, yeah. If I stopped hiring children, others would, and I'd go bankrupt. That's what society does. No, sir. This is how the existing relations of production work, not society. Society is not you. <laughs> and I don't know what you mean by relations of production. 
or sounds Hebrew to me. Thank you, James. If labor costs more, there'd be no more profits. Therefore, no more economy. Therefore, no more society. Perhaps that's what you want, hmm? Hmm? <laughs> so right. We're not speaking the same language. What you call profits, I call exploitation. Roel Peck, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Well, thank you. So uh, a lot of this film is about sort of the creation of the the creation of a theory and the path that led to a book but it's also about a friendship and a romance and i wonder how you came to not just the theoretical part of marx's life but the personal part of marx's life the the story of him as a person uh it it was a long um a long story uh, with this project. First of all, it took 10 years to make. Uh, 10 years because uh, we had to find a way to write this story, which is indeed um, had to be a personal story. Uh, As you can imagine, uh, the project could not be to try to uh, explain all the uh, the historical uh, failure and, and murderous regime that have used uh, Marx uh, thinking uh, to uh, as a justification of them uh, uh, murders. Uh, so, uh, how do you tell a story for today's cinema and for a younger audience in order to understand this incredible uh, uh, um, idea of changing the world, uh, and that Marx, Engels, and Jenny and Mary were young people of their century who were were fed up about the inequality of of that time and the political repression of that time so um so it took us time you know to uh, how do you tell uh, the story of the evolution of an idea and so it, it the film tells the story of these multiple beginnings is that different from the job of a biopic Generally, I mean, you, among other things, you made a really powerful movie about Patrice Lumumba, uh, or you made two powerful movies about Patrice Lumumba, but one of them was a, a scripted narrative feature. Um, is it different to make a movie that ultimately is about a super, super important idea than it is to make a movie about, you know, uh, Brian, Brian Wilson making pet sounds or something like that? <laughs> well, the thing is, uh, we are attacking the most important thinker of modern history. You know, there is nothing beyond Marx, you know, after uh, the Industrial Revolution. You know, Marx's works was on the capitalistic society. And since Marx, there have been nothing as major as what he did. So, and Marx is a personality that comes once every 200 years. He was a, a contemporary of Darwin. Uh, by the way, they, they exchanged letters, you know, Marx and Darwin. Uh, and Marx was so central that he could dare write to Abraham Lincoln, you know, congratulating him for his pretty, uh, new election, etc., etc. So tackling a film like this, you know, and there is a reason why there haven't been any film on Karl Marx in the Western world until now. 
you know, because it's uh, very sensitive. It's politically, uh, or at least it was politically dangerous. It was a taboo as well. But uh, we couldn't tell this story uh, like this because it's not the story of of uh, a few characters who are in love with each other and and the story is about that love and the conflict in that love. No, uh, their private life is just part of the story, but it is not the story. So we had to come up with a way uh, to deconstruct the usual approach of biopic in order to create something totally different. What was the way that you came up with? Well, the the first uh, choice was to, as I did for for my previous film, um, I Am Not Your Negro, where I, I tried to go directly to Baldwin. I eliminated any talking heads. I eliminated any biographer. I eliminated any interpreter uh, with marks that would have been even worse because there are so many misuse of his work in the history of the modern world. So I couldn't get into that uh, that field. I needed to go straight to to Marx and uh, his surroundings. So what we did in in the writing of the screenplay was to rely uh, almost exclusively on the correspondence. And and when you read those letters, that uh, you know all these letters have been published. Uh, you know even his work when he was a twelve year old. A boy uh, um, in uh, in school, and they are phenomenally human. You know, it's about their daily life. It's about uh, their relationship. It's about uh, jokes they made about fellow uh, uh, journalists or fellow uh, uh, scientists. But still, it's it's always about their engagement and about their ambition to to change the world. So it's the best way to stay close to those characters, you know, and make them human, because that's the important part. I want to play another clip from Young Karl Marx, which is the movie by my guest, Roe Peck. And um, the the film is about Marx. It's also about Friedrich Engels, who was his partner in writing the Communist Manifesto. And Engels father was a capitalist. He was a factory owner in in industrial revolution England, although he was not English. Yeah, well, uh, very wealthy. He had factories in Germany as well. And he had a factory in Manchester. And, you know, there is a, there is a scene where uh, Friedrich rebels against his father um, albeit, you know, not too aggressively in, you know, on the factory floor. And Engels walks out and he ends up walking into a pub that is full of Irish laborers, some of whom are the folks who were just fired from his father's factory in the, in the kerfuffle that had just happened. Please stop calling me a gentleman. I'm neither English nor a gentleman. <laughs> You don't say. I hate and despise gentlemen. They are swine who grow fat on the sweat of laborers. He's making fun of us. Mm. You know what I think, fellas? Huh. I think he came in here to have a good laugh at us. He's got nerves. I've come here to enlist your help. That's why I'm here. He wants to enlist us? What sort of a list would that be then? <laughs> I'm working on a book. 
And I need first-hand accounts. A book? Is he writing a book? <laughs> About the condition of the working class in Manchester and Leeds. There's this series of scenes throughout the film of Marx and Engels talking about money, not on a grand economic scale, but on a personal scale. Yes. And I wonder why you, why you included those scenes where Marx basically says to Engels, I have to feed my kids, I'm broke. Well, because it's part of the reality, uh, of their reality. Uh, those young guys, don't forget, they are in their 20s at the time. Uh, Marx is a young married man and he already has one uh, girl. And he's basically uh, living in poverty because whatever he's writing is not bringing much money. So it's, it's a constant problem, uh, almost on a daily basis. And um, and later in, in his year in London, in exile in London, Marx, where, when he started working on the capital and he was very sick uh, most of the time and suffering from all sort of, of uh, uh, sickness, uh, he wrote, well, nobody ever wrote so much about money uh, while having so uh, less of it. You know, that, that's the story of his life. We'll have even more of my conversation with the brilliant Raoul Peck, including my terrible idea for a family-friendly TV spinoff of his very serious and beautiful film. I can only hope that he's at CBS pitching it right now. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for Bullseye and the following message comes from Independent Lens, an Emmy Award-winning documentary series featuring films from across the country that remind us we're all neighbors. See their unique stories Monday nights at 10, 9 central on PBS and streaming free on independentlens.org. Presented by ITVS. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. Help us out by telling us what you like and how we could improve by completing a short anonymous survey at npr.org slash podcast survey. Takes just a few minutes and you'll do all of us at Bullseye a huge favor by filling it out. That's npr.org slash podcast survey. Thanks. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Raul Peck. He was nominated for the Best Documentary Oscar last year for I Am Not Your Negro. This year, he has a scripted film in theaters. It's called The Young Karl Marx. I was born and raised in California, and the idea of a violent overthrow of the government is pretty abstract to me. Mm-hmm. Um you lived until you were eight years old in Haiti. Yeah. When your uh, father and your family were forced to flee uh, because of the Duvalier regime, yeah. which was a, a historically brutal uh, regime. Yeah. What do you remember about having to leave Haiti? Well, th- this was a very vivid time. I, I was young, but I, I remember every every part of it, uh, especially because my father was arrested uh, very shortly after Duvalier came to uh, his presidency. 
and I always uh, kept a, a vivid uh, allergy to uh, any abuse of power and any injustice. Uh, and that's, you know, the same way after we left to go to Congo. My father had a contract with the UN to go to work in Congo. And and I encounter another story of injustice. Uh, when I arrived, I, I was very young. M- Lumumba had uh, were, was already killed. And Mobutu was the next uh, uh, dictator uh, in the bloc. Your father was not a political activist. He was an agronomist yes, um, who taught, you know, farming techniques in a university in Haiti. Yes. Were you aware when you were a child that he and your family were in danger? Uh, not at all. And and that's the the aspect of dictatorship, and in particular the Duvalier dictatorship. It was not about, you know, being involved politically. You know, dictatorships are pretty much blind. It's about instilling terror, meaning, uh, you know, you, you it doesn't matter if there is a reason or not. Uh, you, you install a regime of terror where every citizen is afraid that something can happen to, to, to you. You're never safe. So that's the way to keep you in shock. So, um, no, I, I was not at all. And, and I start seeing it after the, the first arrestation uh, of my father. And uh, he was freed very rapidly before he could be sent to one of those death prisons. Uh, because the regime, there was still the military. They were not all uh, subjected to the to the president, and and uh, and some of those officers recognized him, so he he could uh, be freed uh, quite rapidly. Uh, and it happened a second time, and that's when he decided he had to leave. Uh, and and at the time, uh, the UN came to to Haiti. Uh, Haiti uh, was uh, one of the few black republic existing with with a very important middle class of people who you know were doctors engineers and and teachers and the UN came and offered 400 contracts to to Haitian to go uh, uh, work in Congo because the Belgian had left the Congo and so at that time, my father and, and many of his colleagues uh, just decided to leave because they didn't see a future for themselves in, in Haiti. And a lot of them went to Canada, to Quebec, and also to the United States and, and became teachers, professors, or, or doctors. For a while, when I was a teenager, um, my mom worked on this project in Haiti that was digitizing books from the... 17th and 18th centuries. And these books had been saved when Duvalier came to power by these Jesuit priests who essentially took libraries of these hundreds of year old books and like put them in boxes and buried them in their backyards and things like that. Uh huh. Uh, well, in fact, I, I, I probably I was in that school. That was the Petit Seminaire. That's the mm-hmm. one of the two Jesuit schools, and and they had one of the most phenomenal uh, library, and that still exists today. It's a mad shape, but it still exists. Yeah. And these these books, you know, they were things like, you know, uh, transaction le- ledgers of the Caribbean slave trade and things like this histories of 
histories of the slave rebellion in Haiti that were that was you know one of the only successful slave rebellions in the New World. And but like a lot of these books, it wasn't even about it wasn't even about political content. It was really just that this was a regime that was dedicated to destroying books, <laughs> just knowledge, just knowing yes. things, anything. Yes, and again, it's it's the typical method of terror. You know, and there there was this joke of of people of Tonton Macoute, uh, you know, uh, who were the the militia of of the president of Duvalier, who could uh, you know come to your house if you were suspected, and they would inspect your 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 uh, library, your your bookshelves, and if they find you know a book like. Uh, uh, the 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 black and the uh, the the red and and the black uh, you know the Stendhal book you know you could be in trouble although that of course had nothing to do with communism but again that was a game that Duvalier knew very well to exploit with the Americans because at the time every American administration was just uh, hell bent scared against any communist movement. Anything read was suspect, even when it is a romantic book. When you've had financial success making art, are you, you able to feel good and proud about that? Uh, well, feel good and proud, those are not really terms that I use in my <laughs> life because it's... Uh, it doesn't help <laughs> uh, simply as that, and and it you know uh, the thing we do uh, as artists is really uh, you you never can be satisfied, you know. Uh, uh, I think it's almost the contrary. I, I just look at myself and my work, you know, and look back and say, oh my god, I I did survive, you know. It's it's more much more, you know. You 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 don't know what's in front. You know, you just took the decisions to uh, eventually not to make compromise because that's a choice I had to make. Uh, when I started, uh, it was never to make money. Uh, of course, uh, I, I would be happy if I could live uh, from my art, which ultimately I did, but I, I paid a huge price for that, uh, you know, in order not to go do anything else, not to go teach uh, instead of making films, uh, you know, to have the discipline and to, to live with little money. Uh, and those are the choices um, I, I, I took very early in, in my life, especially because, again, uh, the first uh, ambition was to go back to Haiti, meaning put your life in danger. You know, so when you have that as a, as a goal, uh, you don't see life the same way. You don't, uh, you know, you don't accumulate. You don't think of having a big house. You don't think of having a car, because you know you might have to leave all that behind. So, uh, and I think I benefited from that discipline. Uh, to take risk in my life uh, as a filmmaker. Raul, I have a pitch for you before we go. Yeah, go ahead. You already made the film Young Karl Marx that's about the sort of the developing of uh, the theoretical basis and ideology of communism. Let's make a TV show called Young Karl Marx that's sort of like... (laughs) 
is sort of like in the vein of the young Indiana Jones Chronicles uh-huh. or young Sherlock Holmes. Well, you where would, he's uh, like having yeah. cool adventures. Like maybe he gets stuck <laughs> in like one of those uh, like carts that's in a mine, <laughs> or maybe he could travel the world on one of those train things where you pump the handle up and down to make it go. <laughs> Well, you know, uh, by the way, we wrote seven hours of, of screenplay. You know, <laughs> on, uh, you know the, the, the f- some of the draft we, we started in, in, in uh, uh, Mark's uh, uh, meeting Jenny in the street uh, in Trier the, when they are 12. You know. The working uh, title role was Berlin yeah. Alexander Plots too. Well, exactly. I, I would love to do that, you know. By the way, there, there is a book, uh, Love and Capital, um, um, by a, uh, an American writer, and I think they are trying to make a miniseries out of it. So, no, they are, you know, I, I could make a 10-hour a, a, a uh, limited series with, with what we have because it's an incredible story. Maybe they could have a van and they could solve mysteries. Uh, well, that's still a possibility. <laughs> <laughs> Roel Peck, I am so grateful to you for uh, taking this time to talk to me on Bullseye. Well, thank you for, for the invitation, yes. A tremendous honor. Thank you so much. I hope I'll talk Th- to you again. Thank you. Yes, sure. Raul Peck, The Young Karl Marx is in theaters right now. Go see it if you can. And if you haven't seen I Am Not Your Negro, his documentary nominated for an Oscar last year, please do yourself a favor and check that out, too. Every week on Bullseye, we like to leave you with a culture tip from me. We call it the outshot. In 1970, Curtis Mayfield was still in his 20s, but he was an old man by pop music standards. He'd started singing professionally at 14. He was 16 when he joined the Impressions. Initially, the group had been a vehicle for Jerry Butler, who sang lead on their first hit, For Your Precious Love. Soon after that, though, Butler went solo, and Mayfield started singing lead. His singing wasn't classic soul singing. It wasn't powerful church choir stuff. It was sweet and quiet. They actually needed special microphone setups on the road so he wouldn't be drowned out by the other guys in the group. Curtis wrote and produced most of the Impression's great hits, and they had quite a few. Most of them are tender ballads or gentle, brave, inspirational tunes. This one was a band-from-the-radio civil rights anthem in 1965. But by the time the late 60s rolled around, singles were headed out and albums were headed in. And while there was still some room for sweet soul vocal groups, the kind of doo-wop-rooted stuff the Impressions had been doing was basically old news. So in 1970, Mayfield hit the studio without the Impressions. And the first single he put out under his own name was starkly new and distinctly different. It was called Don't Worry If There's Hell Below 
we're all going to go. It opens with a heavy, fuzzy bass figure and this vocal montage with a woman's voice talking about the book of Revelations. Last night, I was so depressed, and I went and got the Bible, and I turned to the book of Revelations. Then Curtis comes in with language so strong that I have to say right now, for your benefit, that if you've got kids with you, you might not want them to hear it. Sisters! Niggas! Whiteys! Jews! Crackers! Don't worry. If there's hell below, we're all gonna go! It was a pretty bold statement of purpose for a guy who'd been known for, for sweetness. This was, by the way, before What's Going On, before all of Stevie Wonder's great albums. But change was already in the air. Curtis knew he had to make something new, so he did. And he was a leader again. As much as it was new, though, it was absolutely of a piece with what he'd done before. Despite what that opening track's title suggested, it was mostly a hopeful record. It was about holding on to courage and staying the course more than it was about revolution. He wanted respect for the steeple as well as power to the people. Curtis never really made angry records. He made proud, beautiful, inspiring records that contrasted against the deep trauma of racism. They were defiant in that way. They contrasted, too, against the trauma of Curtis's own life. He grew up fatherless, often going hungry when his mother couldn't make ends meet. He knew what real pain was, but he never lost his belief in himself and his people. We people who are darker than blue are we gonna stand around this town and let what others say come true? We're just good for nothing, they all figure. A boyish grown up shiftless jigger. Now we can't hardly stand for that. Or is that really where it's at? Mayfield isn't quite a poet. Sometimes his lyrics clunk up a little, trip over their own feet. But the sentiments in them are so purely beautiful that it really doesn't matter. There's nothing false or insincere on Curtis. The songs radiate love. And Mayfield's melodic gift is almost overwhelming. Herringly stepping so proud Mother Nature's only godchild Society salutes you today And we'd like to say God bless Miss Black America 
It's an eight-song record, four on side A and four on side B. None of the songs were smash hits the way the tracks on, say, Superfly would be a couple years later. Don't Worry made it to number three R&B, but didn't even crack the top 20 on the pop charts. And that was the only track that hit at all in the United States. But this wasn't a collection of hits. It was an album, a journey. Gritty, then beautiful, melancholy, then uplifting. Every song takes us somewhere. It was a new Curtis Mayfield, the start of the most productive part of his career, an incredible half-decade of exceptional work under his own name and a fair few hits that he wrote for his label mates. On Curtis, Mayfield throws his arms around us. He says we're going somewhere together, and our first step starts here, where we stand. It's simple, and it's beautiful. That's my outshot. Hush not, child. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where this week temperatures dipped into the 30s. We were all checking the ends of our noses for frostbite. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Christian Duenas and Casey O'Brien. Production fellows from MaximumFun.org are Jesus Ambrosio and Shayna Deloria. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme music was recorded by our friends The Go Team and provided to us by them and by their label, Memphis Industries. They've got a new record in stores right now. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free. Just go to MaximumFun.org or open up your favorite podcasting software. And while you're at it, check out the Bullseye page on Facebook. We share all our interviews with you there. We tip you off to guests who are coming in. We ask for your help sometimes. We share cool culture stuff that we've seen around the Internet, like uh, I just put up the new Eels video, uh, past guest E from Eels, uh, that stars past guest Mike Mitchell of the sketch comedy group The Birthday Boys. And Kevin, my producer, just posted a really cool piece from the New York Times that is a video analysis of the thrift store scene from Lady Bird. Okay, I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.